Welcome to Transit Matters, episode 12. We are back, and today is April 22nd, 2015. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Oh, yes, Earth Day. Um, it's kind of the point of this whole thing, right? Uh, part of the point of this whole thing? Every ride that you take reduces carbon emissions that could otherwise be spewing out of the tailpipe of a car. Nice. Uh, all right. Uh, I am Jeremy Mendelson. I am a transit planner with a... Uh, Focus. Um, what do I? Yeah. What do I do? I do uh, transit service and operations planning, and um, I do this this project here. I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm I'm a lawyer. I work in commercial real estate, and I like to spend my time thinking about uh, transit and other public policies such as infrastructure and you know smart growth and transit oriented development and all those issues. And I'm Mark Abunia. I'm the curator of our blog and social media feeds. Uh, by day, I'm a systems administrator, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out about meeting celebrities in transportation and getting knee-deep in advocacy. <laughs> I, love, I love hearing that line. It's just, it's just the best. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about the... Uh, we're a couple weeks late to this, but we're going to talk about uh, Governor Baker's special MBTA panel report. And uh, its its findings, its implications, and uh, where do we all go from here? So uh, are we really late? Didn't it come out last week? Was it last week? I don't know. It feels like uh, it feels three like years it, ago. Every, every day has felt like a week. I feel like ever since this winter. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been one hell of a one hell of a ride. It actually the date is reported uh, actually in the file itself. It's it's uh, dated um, April eighth. Uh, 2015. It has been quite a while. So yeah. it's it's been a while. Uh, <laughs> this report is something that's been in the media a lot. So m- most of the listeners, uh, everyone, I think in Massachusetts is, in fact, most people around the country that pay attention to transit at all are familiar with the report. So we're going to start with the big headlines, um, talk about those, and then get down into the weeds of the recommendations. But first, we thought we'd start um, with sort of conclusory thoughts, or just like what. Off the top of our heads, like what do we really think about the report before we do kind of start breaking it down and, and maybe going a little negative, a little positive, whatever we want to do. So, you know, I, when I read the report, to, to kick it off, I thought there's actually a lot of really good actionable um, stuff in the report. There's a lot of things in the report that we have spent a lot of time talking about in Transit Matters. So I'm excited to see that it gets into a report like this where it's going to get lots of um, headlines and hopefully new legs under these issues. I'm not happy that, um, that we're that we're talking about withholding any new sources of revenue, at least in the near term. I was hoping that was going to be part of this report. I'm not happy that we're immediately talking about hitting the fare level and increasing fares um, above the 5% that's already uh, allowed according to current legislation. Uh, I'm not happy about a moratorium on expansion, but let's do recognize that the expansion moratorium uh, only applies applies to expansions that are not federally given federal funds. And expand, and it does not include modernization and capacity improvements as expansions. So we still have those those options. Yeah. So uh, for me, I was actually really concerned because of the leaks that came out the weeks uh, in the days before. Um, but now that I've seen the report, I'm actually really not that surprised in one the way the information that showed up in the report and two the way it was presented and we'll talk about that later in this episode um the points of data that they chose to rep- to highlight and represent the 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 problems that they identified with the T um uh, but that said i i i think i also expected a lot of these things to be the uh political fodder that that um 
that people have really railed on in the uh, in the Herald, and and that people continuously say that the T does this and the T does that. Uh, pensions are in here, or trying to address the pensions um, is uh, is one of the things that's highlighted, and also actually makes its way into today's legislation that was released by the uh, the governor earlier this afternoon. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in general, I I think I was happy with it. But at the same time, uh, looking back, I don't think I was expecting... Uh, the audio recorder died on us. Sorry about that, guys. Um, but I think that Mark was saying that he didn't expect the report to be taken so seriously and acted upon so uh, quickly. Back to the show. Uh, Jeremy's going to once again deliver his three uh, three takeaways from, from the, the, the report. Yeah, so I, I thought that the report had some useful findings... And uh, although I had some issues with some of the, the data and some of the comparisons that it made, I, I did feel like the report came to a lot of the conclusions that we expected or that, that makes sense based on what we know. Uh, but I think that a lot of the analysis that it did was very superficial. There really wasn't any kind of digging into why these things are the way they are. Why do these things cost so much? Or why has the MBTA been unable to deliver these projects in less than 25 years? And things like that. They don't, and when, they, when you look at that, you, you find that there's a lot going on that's not really necessarily MBTA management issues. Um, but there is certainly some of that. Um, and then the other thing that I, that I really have an issue with is that the proposed solutions that they come up with really aren't that don't seem to be that helpful and they kind of take this punish the rider approach you know we're gonna we need to raise more fares and we need to the MBT needs to generate its own revenue and we need to you know um we need to increase the costs um you know from the for example from the, from the fare structure and uh be, be more diligent with our um you know be more productive with the maintenance and all this stuff and it sort of it sort of really takes the punish the rider approach which i really find uh, unhelpful, and it sort of reminds me of uh, what's going on in Michigan, and uh, particularly you know places like Detroit and Benton Harbor, where they have these uh, so-called emergency managers in there that come in um, and are you know selling off the city assets and all kinds of other horrible things. So I don't know if this is as bad, but it, it sort of sort of reminds me of that. Um, and of course, these solutions require legislative action, and so what makes us think that the legislature is some that that has underfunded and um, you know caused all these problems for the MBTA is suddenly going to change their heart and just you know, want to get this right. Yeah. And so, Josh, the last time we said we <laughs> recorded this, you said something witty about <laughs> how we were uh, positive to to to. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so here at the table, we're yeah. uh, we're we're two two to one, um, hopeful versus pessimistic. Um, <laughs> right. But but as but as I said before, you know, Jeremy has the operational experience at the table, so yeah. maybe there's some some founding in fact there, but. Um, you know, so so that being said, get, get, having our, our recaps out there for you, we can begin to dig in a little bit. We want to start with the, the the damning headlines that we all saw in the papers that were leaked by the Baker administration to really get this report out here, um, since that's probably what most people have saliently understood about the report. So the first one was this assertion that, um, you know, the T has been asking for more and more revenue or more and more money. Um, and saying they don't have enough money to, to do the state of good repair that they need to be keeping up and things like that. And yet, they have not been spending all the money that they have allocated to them. Um, what did you have to, what did you think about this, Mark? So the fact that the report has said that the MBTA has only spent $2.3 billion of the $4.5 billion it had planned to spend on capital construction. Now, 
uh, one of the first things that comes to mind when when people think about budgets and without further context as to how a project is funded um, is oh yeah I I pay for things out of my um, out of my pocket because I've got or or I've got money saved up um, but most people don't immediately think of uh, the loans that they take, they take out their car, for their cars, the mortgages that they take out for for property, um, and that's effectively what that 2.3 billion dollars is. Is uh, it's um, sorry, it's, it's your credit limit. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's your credit limit. It's, um, it's like if you spend it all and then like your stove breaks, well then okay, mm-hmm. well now you don't have you know maybe you only got 200 dollars left, and right now what are you going to do? Well, the fact of the matter is that these this 2.3 billion dollars was actually authorized for very specific projects, and yes, the T has had trouble getting these through the door, and uh, there is there is the title of this this slide. On page, what is this, 20 of, of the report, if you're following along, um, bottlenecked project delivery. So this, this bottleneck, they don't really go into details as to what's specifically causing this bottleneck. Um, they do, uh, they do make allusions to this in the, in the recommendations about, uh, design build procurement method and, if you have an idea, if you've ever worked in procurement or if you've ever followed these projects closely enough as a diligent citizen, you understand what design build means. Basically, that means that, uh, the, the contractor who you have chosen to do X project, like the red line and orange line procurement, uh, orange line car procurement, that those people design and then build the project rather than you coming up with a design in-house, spending months and months going back and forth with a, with a consultant, and then going to somebody to build it. So, uh, But then you went, you'll still end up with problems where, uh, and this is a recurring theme, there are not enough employees to properly allocate uh, to properly share the workload. There are four people who work in the capital improvement pro- uh, department alone. And so these people are not only dealing with uh, the granting process and coming up with the budget, but also uh, making sure that the money goes out to the contractors for the different projects that they're working on. And so that this is part of the reason why we don't have inspirational capital budgets or capital plans is because... They don't have time to come up with. <laughs> they don't. There's no yeah. room for inspiration. So and honestly, it's like yeah. if I, you know, if like should I be going to do like I've been working with this guy. I was talking about this. I have this computer that's like seven years old, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, if I yeah, I would like to get a new computer, and it's something that I want to do soon, but I don't have the money for it right now. So should I go and do the research on the computer, you know, and prepare like figure out how I'm gonna. You know, pay for the computer. It's like I know I don't have the money for the computer right now. So like, right. why can't I just wait? And the T is essentially doing the same thing, right? It's like it's like, well, we not none of these projects are getting funded anyway. So why why should we? Uh, they recently like made headlines for not planning for them anymore. Well, but these this two point three billion dollars is for projects that have been authorized. So that's um, what right. was it? That's uh, 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 debt debt authority right. that that has been granted to right. them to right. do these projects. So yeah, no, I, I think I yeah I think I, I see what you're saying. It's a, it's, it's something that we'll have to loop back on. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it speaks to the, also the uh, this, this failure of contingency and emergency planning that they right. highlighted. It's something that I've been talking about for years, and um, you know where we. At the T, oh, I just said this before. Um, <laughs> so at the, when I when I was at the T, you know, about probably about five years ago, um, they 
it, we had a bad winter, and we got a lot of flack from people who, you know, they were upset that we didn't communicate very well, and a lot of the services didn't run well, and there, was, there didn't seem to be a plan for dealing with severe weather. And and it's true, there, there wasn't. And one of the big things that came out of that was that we need a plan for dealing with severe weather. And we one of the big problems, that well, the main problem that we identified was that the service usually runs okay in a snowstorm. And, you know, it's on time. There's not a lot of riders. There's not a lot of traffic out there. So things go okay. But then the, the vehicles take such a beating that on day two and day three, you don't have half the vehicles you need to operate the service. So we identified that we need to reduce the number of vehicles out on the street on day one. Uh, and we're going to do that by saying, okay, we're figuring out which routes are going to run less frequent and if we're going to, you know, do some variations and change routes and, you know, various things that we're going to communicate to people and these are, you know, strategies that we're going to have to, to manage this. Um, it really only got as far as putting up notices in stations that said your service is not going to run, it might not run as frequently, uh, check online, um, which really doesn't say anything more than, you know, my bus is running 10 minutes late because of, uh, you know, traffic congestion or whatever they put on the website. Right. So, um, that's really as far as it got. We saw in this winter that that was really needed and sorely lacking, that they tried to run a full weekday schedule and then they couldn't and the same problem happened and they had no idea how to deal with the subway being out. And um, yeah. Not that you could suddenly make things perfect, but if you had planned, if you had a plan for, okay, these are how many buses we need and these are where we're right. going to put them, we could have reached out to other places and to you know, private companies and said, yeah, you know, we, we need a call for, this is the desperate call for, for help and give us buses. Right. And we could have made something work. So related to that, uh, at the Eno Center for Transportation's uh, Best Tra- Practices in Regional Transit Governance uh, Forum last week at MIT, uh, Interim G- uh, interim General Manager of the MBTA, Frank DePaula, um, spoke a little bit about the emergency planning that they had to do this winter, um, and that he his experience in working in the upper echelons of these of these agencies is that they actually do end up having these a lot of these emergency meetings, and as you start to integrate these emergency procedures, they become to be they become daily practice that they integrate. But that isn't to say that this emergency. These these regular scrums that they have these scrum meetings if you if you guys uh, if you're familiar with management or or development um, you might, might be familiar with the idea of a scrum but basically the heads of departments and everybody gets together for a short meeting um, before the before the rush hour and then and uh, the main, the AM rush hour and then midday for right before the PM rush hour but that's not that's not a that does not take the place of a contingency plan that. Um, covers as many emergencies as possible. Obviously, you're not going to cover everything, but um, having a script available to just say, "Okay, now this we we are we have reached X. Now this this goes into action." Uh, and that isn't to say again that that there is nothing of that sort, but it's it's clearly not working for the agency. And while this snowstorm, this series of snowstorms, really taxed the system. Um, Speaking to uh, what you spoke about last time, Josh, before we realized that it wasn't recording, the fact that the agency has also been very insular about um, this contingency planning and, and emergency planning, and um, I believe it was... Well, the, least, the example yeah. was the failure even to look around the region mm-hmm. and see how other, other cities who have as bad or worse winters how their transit systems deal with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that the, the, the MBTA had become so insular that they just 
we're falling back on what they what they just always do as opposed to seeing how things were advancing in other parts of uh, the region. Right. So, for example, uh, take our um, April Fool's Day post about New York City offering one of its de-icer cars. That's actually... Uh, so to be, it, they actually do have a de-icer equipment, um, and and that that's basically cars that have are equipped with special shoes and drip uh, de-icing fluid onto the third rail, um, and they they cut the ice off of the third rail and add and add that de-icing agent. Um, but this is it's actually a an older car that has been re reused, and the MTA does a really great job of repurposing old equipment into doing stuff like this. And and that's actually what I'd love to see the T start doing. Um, so in in the absence of um, having the resources to buy new equipment, repurposing older equipment to do similar things, where uh, I I found it shocking in the same way that somehow uh, the leadership found it shocking that. Oh my gosh! You don't. You're not supposed to run a full train as a means of de-icing the third rail. Uh, that's. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's what they've been doing for a hundred right. years, and so that's what they right. know how to do. You know. Also, they right. weren't just using de-icer. Yeah. Right. I mean. Well, because they they were afraid of. Uh, they weren't yeah. sure about uh, about the corrosive effects or how corrosive it would be to the tracks, and they didn't want to. In- for fear of 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 inducing more capital costs uh they did not do some of these traditional practices and and admittedly going back to the maintenance thing um or repurposing cars i do realize that the maintenance shops at everett are very very much overloaded so this is one of the problems that comes with having you know inadequate staff and you're not able to go to these conferences you're not able to hire the people to do these things because what happens is say so you know now you have this situation where um, you would, you would, um, you don't have, you have people who start as, as a bus operator, right? And this is not necessarily unique to the T. This happens in a lot of places, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of places in a lot of, uh, organizations where you have somebody start as a bus job operator and they're like 20 years old. Um, and that's all they do. You know, they do that for 10 years and they work a lot of overtime and that's all they know. Maybe they go to New York on a weekend once, but they don't, they don't know anything about how transit works in other places. Right, they just know that this is what we've always been doing, and this is what we do, and so then you. But they become experts at it. To right. be, to be, right. you know, to be fair, but which is great. But then you're, <laughs> you have that sort of. So we're experts at what we've always done, basically. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that you know, talking about the contingency planning, that kind of feeds into the next big headline, which was absenteeism, and and the reason was is I think the the quote was that the the average T employee took fifty seven days off last year. Um, was that was it an average? Yeah. Is that what it was? So actually, that that I, I ended up speaking to somebody in middle management at the T, and supposedly that fifty four days also includes like, like uh, I, I believe it does include paid time off. Like this is all it includes everything. It adds, it's everything. everything. Like so FMLA and stuff. right, FMLA. exactly. So <laughs> so let's okay. so what FMLA? That's um, let's the, break the that family down. Family medical leave. There we go. A, yep. a federal law that. You know, even if you're not being paid, employers, whether it's government or private or whatever, they have to. Um, I shouldn't say that. I actually am not sure if government employees have to do this, but the T yeah. employees are not government employees. Um, but your employer has to let you take this time off, whether they're going to pay you or not, and they can't fire you. Right. Um, but one of the reasons to bring this up is because there there was a graphic uh, on page 27 of the report that talked about all the dropped bus trips and what the causes of the dropped bus trips were. 
and they were to FMLA leave absences, to no-shows, to um, uh, operator was, was sick or a no-show a, a no or whatever it was. And so then they said at the bottom, in February, in January and February of 2015, so this winter, there was more than 6,400 bus trips canceled due to unplanned absenteeism of all forms. So, um, you know, the thing is, you, you can say, we're going to be running this bus route tomorrow, and it's going to be on a limited schedule, but then the driver doesn't show up, and nobody knew the driver wasn't going to show up. And so that was definitely some of the problems we were having yeah. uh, a lot this winter, where the T was trying to run, but the employees weren't show, showing up. And the first thing, of course, this Probably played, because the T wasn't running. Right. right. <laughs> exactly, no, that was exactly what I was going to say. Is maybe they couldn't get to their to their route because the T wasn't running, but... What what do you guys think about that? Because this was huge in the headlines. Because this plays really well into everybody's you know feelings that these peop- these employees get special treatment and they're not operating in the real world like the rest of us are. So well, this got media coverage. I mean, this has gotten media coverage over the years, but usually on like a little burst. Um, it's something that the T has known about for a long time. That this the issue of drop trips, and you know, occasionally they get brought to task for it, but nothing ever really comes of it. Um, they know that they drop a lot of chips. Basically, the issue is. You don't have a lot of resources. You can you can pay people overtime, but yeah. Well, what do you want to write? The, the report says they, well, they want they want the T to now require people to work overtime. I so mean, that's you, not you, really can't, fair. you can't force them. You to can't work force them to work overtime, right? This is a person. It's like a high stress job, long hours, right? So so they ask for people to work overtime, but then you're there. There comes a point at which like you don't want to pay over. Like initially, you want to pay a little bit of overtime, right? Because it's a little cheaper than than hiring somebody else and giving them you know, all the benefits and everything else. But at some point, there's like a break even factor. Um, so then, you know, you have that, but if you can't hire people because you have a hiring freeze or you don't have the people to bring them on fast enough, um, like these are all, these are all like management slash funding problems here because like you should not be, you should not be having a system where if somebody calls in sick, you don't run the bus. You should have a bunch of people. It's like, I don't know how many percent of your staff it is, but you have a bunch of people whose job it is to show up and like. Okay, yeah, you're driving number one today because somebody right. didn't come in. That's the point of the um, the reserve staff, the uh, the new staff who actually get hired in as as part time. They 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 do split shifts, the AM rush and the PM rush, but also are effectively on call to do these routes. And uh, yeah, it's just sheer resource allocation. And um, you know, you can complain as much as you want about oh gosh, there are so many people who so many lazy employees at the T, but it it really is just a matter of resource allocation and um and the fact that yeah okay you can complain about that inspector falling asleep in the booth but um really what do you want that person to just get like get out of the booth and abandon what's going on at the station for to go just drive a train just go just I don't care what you're doing just stop <laughs> sleeping in the booth and go drive a bus or a train you I mean, know there are people whose yeah. job it is to like they have other yeah. things that they can do like with the paperwork or whatever but like right. you know if they come in and they're needed then they go and do that you know it's like right. anybody who runs a business knows that like there's certain functions that have to be I mean whether it's a receptionist or a delivery driver or whatever right. it is it's like you know somebody's got to cover there and like you need to make arrangements to have a person and you look at here and you see okay like disabled bus like well, yeah, there's like some maintenance issues going on, but I mean, and then you look at FMLA being the leading reason for, you shouldn't be dropping bus trips because of FMLA. It doesn't make any sense. Like right. somebody says, I'm going to be out for three months. And it's like, you hire somebody to replace that person. Right. Like, Well, FMLA also could just be, I've used up all my vacation time and I, they're not going to pay me to take off, but I'm still, they're still required to let me take off. Um, and so, and you know, there's a lot of ways this can be played. Somebody could okay. say, well... And this is probably, maybe this is what happened, is they were saying, look, 
Family Medical Leave Act, which is here to help take care of your family, they're saying, my kids don't have school today because of the snow. I got to stay home and take care of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that, that would fall into probably Family Medical Leave Act. So, so we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this forward <laughs> here since I now have control of the clock. Um, <laughs> so actually, uh, this, I want to tie this into, our, into the next segment of, of things that we want to talk about related to the panel, which is the data issues. So considering absente- employee absenteeism, we've already started to kind of tear, uh, pick at the, um, what the numbers really mean and, and, and the implications, but also the bus, uh, the, the bus drop trips. Well, the dropped bus trips. Uh, I, my favorite tweets ended up coming from, uh, uh, the, the Mass Inc. folks actually, uh, specifically related to, uh, the fact that, that the numbers that, that were dropped were actually a drop in the bucket as compared to the volume of of trips that get run annually, let alone in a single month. So, right. uh, as a from a from an on the ground perspective, and I believe that they end, actually may have ended up doing polling of of bus riders, but the fact remains that when the even when it was snowing on the ground, the thirty nine kept running. So it was it was actually pretty good. They. Uh, the bus fleet, the bus number counts, the, the fleet counts ended up staying pretty high for the buses as well. Um, and, uh, throughout the storms, I ended up actually seeing buses that, uh, this is our, tra- my transit geekery, uh, showing here. Um, there is a roster that you can, that you can look up and see the different buses that are supposed to be in maintenance. And I started seeing those numbers actually out in the field. So the, the MBTA has been bringing to bear the, the, the full force and availability of their equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, they've gotten, so in addition to that, they've gotten the new buses that were on order, the 60 new buses from New Flyer. And they, I believe that they still haven't even retired the old RTS buses, yeah. the the high level boarding buses with the the domes that look like they're from the 1980s. I mean, that made a huge difference because I mean, you, you know, they they were running shuttles and they were doing yeah. all kinds of stuff. And and again, I mean, this is why you do contingency planning so that you can have, you know, when you have this these kinds of stuff, yeah. when people aren't showing up or you have these special events, you can yeah. say, okay, this is where we need people, and somebody shows up to work. Okay, where do you want me? Right. And well, as I'm sure that some of the red line people can say that. The shuttles just weren't enough, but yeah, they were trying of to course. run shuttles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the other reason you do contingency planning, right? I mean, yeah. Mark, if, total total left field here, Mark. How many of those RTS buses do they have left? Uh, I can look that you, up. Well, if you don't know off the top of your it's head, like that's fine. <laughs> it's like hundred. I just so. don't see them very often, so I, I I assumed there was you know maybe ten left in the whole there's system them, or something. There's a lot of them. In, they're mostly out of Charlestown, which would be means Cambridge, Somerville, so you okay, see. Okay. And then there would, there's a lot in Lynn. When I used to take buses out of Alewife, I used to see uh, more of those than I do now. Well, actually, I've got the roster up yeah. here, um, but uh, the bus fleet, according to those numbers, don't know if this uh, these <laughs> it's accurate. Uh, yeah, it should be accurate. Uh, supposedly, there are twenty-two active RT. Uh, well, actually, twenty-two plus eleven plus forty, so about uh, what is that? 80, 70, 80 buses, 70, 70 wow. buses, okay. 70 buses that are active, not to speak of the rest of them which yeah. are stored, which may be out retired about, or on their way yeah. to be. It's out of about 1,100 total, so I mean, yeah. it's not a lot. But, um, Thanks yeah, for humoring you, me with that aside. Yeah, yeah but, <laughs> sure. But, but that's actually interesting you bring that up because, I mean, those, those, those rounder, you know, older buses, I mean, those are, those were from 1994. And so we are they that? I thought they were older than that. Yeah. Well, no. So yeah, I mean, New York City has ones I think that are from from as old as I am. I think. So I mean, (laughs) the expected useful life of a bus is twelve years, right? And now it costs a lot more to maintain something that's twenty years old because it needs all kinds of special stuff, and the staff sometimes have to make parts for some of these things because they can't get them anymore. 
So just something to keep. In or it's mind cheaper than to actually buy off the market. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So so moving forward, uh, Fairbox recovery comparisons. Um, so I think I'm sure you've already heard this uh, from the Mass Inc. folks, and that we've been retweeting. Um, looking on page slides eleven or ten and eleven. Ten and eleven. So on page ten of the report, if I can follow that here, and if you'll excuse a little bit of the background noise as we. Uh, shuffle around here. Um, so, so the the biggest concern about about this uh, these fare box recovery ratios, or otherwise the percentage of the budget that is paid for by the fares from the users, it's it they're comparing the T to other systems who may not necessarily run all of the modes that the T does, but also. Um, may get more revenue from those other modes than the, the than our share. So it's not really an apples to apples to apples comparison. It's even in even in the appendix they they sh- they show a checklist <laughs> of all of the different modes uh, that are carried by the different operators that they uh, that they pit the MBTA against on page eleven. Uh, and they say, wow, look at, look at how awesome the T is, cause they actually cover all of these different modes that these other agencies don't, but it doesn't seem to make it into this, uh, this graph here in the So I guess the easiest example is that, um, you know, so they're saying, well, the T is at the bottom of the list here, they only get 39%, um, of their operating expenses from passenger fares. And they're saying, oh, but look at BART gets 76%, and, and the point, as you were making, is not only does BART only run uh, subway, but they also run distance-based fares, so it's sort of like our commuter rail runs fare zones um, based on how far you travel. Right, which is, uh, well, actually, but even to a more fine point, because uh, since BART is a, it's a modern system designed in the 1960s and 70s, much like DC Metro, um, well, where which which actually even... Has, it's also an yeah. automated... There's no drivers on those trains. So. Well, no, drivers, they are. But they don't actually drive. They don't actually drive. Much yeah. like oh. what, what, what Washington Metro was. Mm-hmm. So BART and Washington Metro were designed similar... At around the same time as actually the RER in Paris, and they all share roughly the same kind of idea of... Uh, I think it, some somewhere back in that time there was emerged this idea that distance based fare payment and and actually that's now baked into. Um, yeah. What's well, also the nature yeah. of the system? You know, when when uh, those systems were built, it's it's sort of like they've always had. You know, we have a lot of things because we've always had them you right. know, here, and it's like they've always had the computerization. They've had computerization yeah. baked into the system. But they've and they've always there's always been this idea that you know the, the fares are the way they are. You know, we we. Like we don't like, for example, to go to go from like you know Cambridge to Boston or from Newton to Boston, it's always right. pretty much been considered to be about the same thing. Right. It's like to go from San Francisco to Oakland, for example, was always there was always like an extra fare, and so it's it's different, you know, different stuff. And they put in here, you know, they, they put in the little um, the little footnote here, and they says, well, this is uh, the the trip that they quote for uh, this, um, yeah, for London, for, for, for Yeah, well, Wamata was the example that I was, but London the same thing. I mean they. They say, you know, from going from Silver Spring to uh, to Metro Center, which is downtown, Silver Spring is the suburbs. And so this is like, you know, saying Needham or Newton or something. If you look at the lowest uh, fare for Wamata Metro rail, yeah. rail for going, like, you know, close stations, um, it's $1.60. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, they, 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 all these comparisons are, like, total BS. It's clear that they were grasping for an apples, a very, very simple apples-to-apples apples comparison, but they failed to do that by just 
oversimplifying this the situation and I, I get the point that they're trying to make, but they're forcing the point with the statistics that they're pulling out. Because again, uh, Wamada and Bart. So Wamada is 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 uh, serves all of DC Metro, uh, Metro DC, but Bart is not the only transit system. Bart Bart should be included there with with uh, Muni, and Muni's nowhere on that chart and probably runs, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it probably runs a closer fare box recovery ratio to the T. I'm going to do the quick version on the fares. The, uh, so the T you got here is uh, 210. The MTA is 250, and it runs all night and has express trains. Uh, CTA in Chicago doesn't run any suburban service, um, the, and also runs overnight. Um, Wamada in Washington, D.C., like I already talked, in London I already talked about this distance-based. So if you look at these, and it's like... Well, you, so this when I saw because the whole the whole point of this graphic is to say we're obviously not charging enough in fares, right? And, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but like that's my that was my why I'm like got really soured on the report to begin with because yeah. this is kind of the first stuff I saw and I was like, what are you talking if, about? If if you want to talk about these numbers, take a look at any of the number the, the any of the reports that actually preceded this report that actually go into the depth of of analyzing these uh, these costs. Um, I think uh, even. Our current transport secretary uh, Pollock was actually involved in one of those reports. So, and Josh, you talked um, about like revenue. What is it? Vehicle miles per revenue operator. Slide forty-eight, I think, is is the page back that all the way down in the ind- uh, appendix. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what we talked about uh, before we started recording today, um, even the first time. And and what we were saying is, if if anybody's following along, looks at page forty-eight in the report. It shows that uh, it's it's vehicle vehicle revenue miles per full time operator, and then and then kind of the bold headline here is that MBTA vehicle operators are less productive compared to peer transit system operators, and so they need to be more productive. And I first looked at this and I thought, okay, if you look at the, on the left side, buses. First of all, we compare actually pretty favorably to everybody else except for uh, New Jersey Transit, but the issue here is that vehicle revenue miles per operator. This is just measuring how how many miles you're driving, how many miles you're driving while while you're driving, and so to me this is a measure more of how much congestion you have than it is of of how productive you are. Right. Because if you have more traffic, then you don't drive as far. Right. Um, whereas if you're running an express route, then you're driving more miles in the same amount of time. They're they're defining this productivity by. Uh, a metric that makes no sense for transit. That product, the the measure of productivity, much like the measure of of of, of level, so like level of service. For those of you who are more familiar with the the livable streets movement and and uh, the terms there, so so I think almost everyone now like level of service is now almost a household phrase. For, I would go that far. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Yeah. We're talking about cars now. But right, so yeah. cars. So that's a measurement of how many cars can go through an intersection, or vehicles can go through an intersection. That doesn't speak to how many people can move through the intersection. And in this, in, in a similar way, measuring the number of miles tra- driven per operator has no bearing on the number of people who can actually get through the system within a certain period of time. Uh, and, it also and doesn't ex- tell yeah. you if it doesn't tell you how many people got from destination to destination. Yeah. 
It doesn't tell you how fast they got there. It doesn't tell you how happy they were about their trip. Right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't tell us anything like that. It just simply tells us how far the bus drove. These aren't indicators. So, again, I think that's why also they might have shoved it into the appendix. I, again, I, I, it seems like they're, they're grasping at simple numbers to show people, which I think is kind of noble, but they're doing a disservice to the agency that they're trying to analyze by, by measuring it in with metrics and comparisons that just, uh, like I, these are supposed to be some of the people on this on this panel were supposed to be transit transit operating professionals, and, and I'm increasingly disappointed in in the way that they did this. So, one of the other data points we were gonna we were gonna mention, which we talked about earlier, was the employee uh, absenteeism. Mm-hmm. Was there any any data issue that we had with the numbers? Well, I think we talked about contextualizing those. Just to cut the yeah. context, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, it, it seems very. Um, yeah, like it lacks any kind of understanding of, of you know why people are absent. Are there you know are there are there issues where there is like a very high stress rate that's causing some of this FMLA, for example? Maybe, maybe not. I, yeah, who knows? Maybe. But they just like this is an example where I said they don't dig into this. They're just like, oh yeah, here's the numbers. People are taking a lot of time. Yes. Off and, this is this. I mean, that, I think that's partially why it did so well in the press is because it's it's done like, admittedly, a very very wordy PowerPoint presentation. I would never deliver PowerPoint like this because this is these are the outlines and the notes that you give. You <laughs> did, um, but uh, like if you wanted to do a TED talk about the T and you wanted to do it in a way that seemed shocking, you'd pull all the charts and then you'd you'd speak all the points. But um, and so again, what yeah. are you going to do about this? Right? Yeah. So they say here. You know, it causes substantial overtime costs. 30% of the workforce, they said, is, is certified like unscheduled intermittent family and medical leave. Mm-hmm. This is disruptive to productivity. Well, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to just, like, say, oh, no, you can't take family and medical leave? You can't do that. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> this doesn't provide an actual solution. It just says, like, every should, everybody should develop a plan to substantially reduce absenteeism. By like fighting abuse, right? I mean, that sounds right. like fighting abuse of like food stamps. Right. It. I mean, so I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head before. The issue isn't necessarily the absenteeism. The issue is ensuring. Well, ins- first and foremost, ensuring that we're measuring ab- the bad absenteeism or abuse of absenteeism correctly. But then the other part is, like what you said, making sure that there is availability of staff knowing these numbers. So. So before we get into the recommendations, um, there were, I think, three other high points that didn't fit in anywhere else that we had talked about so far that had, have received a lot of attention in the mm-hmm. reporting on this. And uh, They are the uh, the Pachico Law. I always wonder if I'm saying that right. Pachico. The Pachico Law, short-sighted expansion, and lack of customer focus. Um, so I don't know if there's anything we wanted to, to say about that, but those were, were three things I feel like have gotten a lot of play in the <coughs> media and uh, uh, you know at the State House uh, in this report. And of course, there and there's been a lot of ink uh, written about these things, especially on the the Apachico law, which I believe they're um, they're already talking about this up in in the state house, and they've been going back and forth. Some of the legislators uh, are in favor of uh, suspending the requirements uh, under the Apachico law uh, to allow for more privatized uh, contractors and things like that, and others are, are against it. I think the short sighted expansion is something we've talked about uh, probably quite a bit on this on this show before about you know is it. Is it really? Can, is it fair to call it short-sighted expansion when it was mandated um, because of because, because this of, is this is what the legislators said? Oh, okay, we're going to authorize this money because it it does well for my exactly, <laughs> and and it was mandated because of highway expansion and the idea that 
if we're creating highways to help people come from the suburbs, we should also create transit to help people come from the suburbs, even though that transit is is not going to be as cost-effective as expansions uh, within the inner core of the system. Right. And then that lack of customer focus, I think we've talked, I've talked about it uh, at least in the blog, um, even previous to uh, to us starting the podcast, I believe I've talked about this considerably. Um, my 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 angle of customer focus has been communi- has been mas- mostly communications because that's that's my experience of the system. But also um, in in the means of well, so on their on their that's slide thirty of the presentation. If I can scroll down to that here. Um, so their points are mainly that, yep, internal, uh, internal needs. Uh, so the way that they solve a problem tends to be more about, well, this is what the procedure needs to be for our employees as opposed to, well, this is what the customers need, which, uh, there's, that's a very, very careful balance there. Um, but, uh... Poor communication is one of those. The MBTA should implement a rigorous customer-oriented performance management system. Years of unreliable service, inadequate facilities, poor communication, and lack of written customer-oriented protocols have broken the bond of trust between MBTA and its riders. That is number one, and I experienced that personally, actually. Uh, on Monday after the, during the marathon, uh, the 39 was rerouted on different streets, and, and the service advisories for that were just a mess. And that's part of the reason why the service advisories in the system today are mine, because I saw an issue with... I mean, there, there's just no reason why you shouldn't have uh, maps to show what the uh, the rerouting should be. And it's again, it's that it's it's that, bond, that trust of you're going to communicate to me properly, this is where the bus is going to be, and then it's that, that on-the-ground experience of the system. Um, if I had known that the, that the uh, 39 was running on Columbus Avenue, I would have walked there, and one gentleman who I ended up driving home in a zip car wouldn't have been standing on a, on a bus stop for, tw- for two hours because he didn't know. Because uh, then that actually, in that specific example, he was told to wait there because uh, actually more un- more uh unfortunately that day the green line uh the surface section of the green line that overlaps with the e um actually had a power cut he was pay- he was put there at the at the prudential stop to tell people to take the 39 um because he's from the because he was from the light rail uh division i don't think he realized what the diversion was and so uh for the most part he was telling people to wait there at the stop where the buses weren't going to be going, and it's just more of that inter interdepartmental lack of written com- customer-oriented protocols of, you know, there are bus reroutings. Everyone in every department needs to understand what's going on, or otherwise, you know, where can I look? Or uh, making sure that if you send somebody to the website, that there's information that's clear and concise. And I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I you know, this stuff needs to be better. Um, you know, I, I have always have a hard time where people, you know. Politicians do the typical thing of like, oh, we don't want to fund the MTA. Reform first. Reform before revenue. Remember yeah. that one? Um, and and but then they then they go, oh, you know, you MBTA manager, like, why is my bus? Why does my bus suck so much? Yeah. And then like their bus gets made a little bit better, and you know, around the edges, and then they calm down, and things just move along. And, you know, and so I get I get really weary when people point their fingers at the T for this stuff. But yeah, let's face it. I mean, this stuff. This is a big. All this communications issues are big problems. Yeah. Here, and they need to be addressed. And so yeah, I don't I don't uh, I don't doubt that. Um, I'd love to see. It some. sounds like there's a butt in there. No, I oh. just love to see. Well, I mean, I, again, they didn't dig very deep, right? So yeah. I'd love to see some, some, you know, concrete of like, you know, what are, 
um, what are some examples of like how, how should we move this in the right direction? What should we do? Um, and maybe that's elsewhere. Right. I I think um, one of the su- uh, suggestions is um, strengthening customer communications. Blah blah blah. Innovative ways of sharing. Blah blah blah. These are all things that the T is currently working on. So. Uh, so more recommendations. So moving, mo- move, yeah, moving yeah. into the because the 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 central recommendation that came well, out can of I, this. Can I talk re- about privatization for a minute? Or are you gonna oh yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, just because it was one of those three things. Um, so there's a lot of talk in, and this isn't just the MBTA. This is you know the the post office is dealing with this kind of stuff. There's um, you know any government you know people have to bash yeah Amtrak people have <laughs> to bash uh, these government agencies because it's like you know ideolo- ideology like sort of prompts them to. It, First of all, this idea that privatization is somehow going to fix everything is complete and like bullshit. Like I just want to say that straight up. It's it's when you first of all like there's there are things that are needed to operate a system. So um, you, you can't just automate just automatically privatizing something is not going to make it better or cheaper. Um, there may be private companies who might do certain things certain things differently that might be good. Sure. Uh, they might also be bad. So just saying that straight up doesn't doesn't solve anything. Also, when you when you say okay, people these people are paid too much. You know, we need to we need to pay them less, or we need to you know get private companies that can contract with little van, little jitneys, and things like that. First of all, we have a network for a reason. And if you if you're gonna try to pay somebody, you know, fifteen dollars an hour with like limited like a really crappy health plan. You know, and say, okay, yeah, come here and, and drive a bus. You know, we'll give you a little four hundred one k that says, you know, we won't donate anything to it or whatever. Um, you're not going to get people that stick around for twenty years and then become experts on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's, and then you're going to get a very high turnover, and you're going to have to hire new people, and it just doesn't. These people who push privatization all the time, like they have no idea. They seem to have no idea what it's like to actually run an organization, right. and I get really frustrated with that. Also, the particular law, I mean. It was passed <laughs> because you know people wanted it. So what's to say the legislature is gonna gonna go get rid of that? Right. So I just get really really mad when I hear people talk about privatization because it just it just it's not a solution. Like I'm not opposed to the private sector. Certainly there's there's things you know where you know certain things like like you might the reason you contract out a service is because like let's say you're a little town and you decide you need to run a couple shuttles mm-hmm. and you have no idea how to run a shuttle. You don't know how to what you know how to hire drivers or anything. So you hire a company that's got experience in doing that. But you know when you're when you're running transit agency of Boston to like just say like um, somebody said I think it was um, I think it was uh, Dukakis that might have, former governor Dukakis that might have said this or, or maybe Fred Salvucci one one of them said uh, you know that uh, the commuter rail you know we tried privatizing the commuter rail and how is that working out for us yeah not any better so yeah it's uh, anyway I'm done ranting <laughs> it it it's uh, no no I I, I agree I, your your point basically being that uh, you you disagree with the the uh, What's the the best metaphor there? The that it's going to be the the silver bullet to fix the problem. Yeah. Um, the ideology of the free market, essentially. Yeah. So, uh, so the key yeah. recommendation of the of the panel uh, in this report was to come out with a fiscal and management control board. And but initially they they did show that there was several other scenarios they considered, um, ranging from simply modifying the existing governance structure. Uh, going into receivership, um, for a while it seemed like maybe we were getting leaks that that was what was going to happen. We had several prominent mayors and some legislators saying that, that was the the thing that should happen. So I was actually a little surprised when we didn't get anything about receivership in this report. Can you just, Josh, because you probably know about this, can you just explain the difference? 
what is receivership and what is it? Well, it's just, uh, the, the best way, uh, receivership, the easiest way, I think the easiest analogy is like when a, when a municipality goes bankrupt and um, receivership basically, you see, you've been seeing this uh, in Michigan where little towns are going, cities are going bankrupt and what will happen is the governor will place um, someone in control of their finances and um, they just basically, they just have to make the money, the, the numbers work. And they're able to get around their union contracts. They're able to get around some other otherwise legally mandated um, ways of budgeting or, or making expenditures. Um, so that's what receivership allows you to do. It's it's basically bankruptcy um, for this type of uh, of agency. So they they didn't do that one uh, obviously. And then the other thing they considered was uh, abolition of the MBTA and creating a different agency entirely, um, which I think would have been so difficult to, to try to figure out. I'm glad they didn't try to go into that scenario. Um, so, you know, so we'll spend the rest of the show talking about the recommendations and, and how we're moving forward with this. Um, we're, we're on slide 35 now for people who are following along, dealing with the Fiscal and Management Control Board. And this is what you've been reading the papers about, how they asked the, um, the, the board to step down that was currently overseeing um, um, the MBTA. And they, they've all turned in the resignations to the governor as requested. And basically what the governor has been saying is, look, I own this issue. The voters all think that I own this issue. They want me to be accountable for the MBTA. And I really can't do it unless I have my own people on, the, on, this, on a special board. And it actually has control over what's happening at the MBTA. And I, you know, I think there's some merit to that. But on slide 35, some of the things to point out is that he wants this board to be able to manage and control revenues and costs aggressively. He wants to develop one, five, and 20-year capital and operating plans. They want to reorganize the MBTA along modal business lines. That's something that I wanted to get your guys' input on. Is what exactly does that mean and how would that work? Um, and in operations, there's a lot of things that we've talked about before in the show in operations. Uh, they want to create a customer-oriented performance, and man performance management, strengthen customer communications. Mark loves that one. Invest heavily in system and fleet modernization. Strengthen emergency response capabilities and rationalize and reform system routes, particularly bus routes. Cut so, bus service. That's what that means. That means cut bus service. That's exactly what that means. Rationalize particularly bus routes. I mean, that's, that's clearly what that means, cut service. <laughs> I, right? I don't it, know. I guess, I guess that maybe that's the difference that you and I probably come to things with you're more pessimistic. And I, well, I think of this as like, <laughs> I think of this as more, there was, there was a Globe article, <clears throat> I think it was Shirley Lang, um, Saying you know every so many years maybe we should zero out or you know completely start over from scratch. That's what it was. It was a Globe editorial, yeah. editorial board yeah. piece a couple weeks ago saying, you know we're still just blindly running the same routes we've been running for the last eighty or so years. Um, you know maybe we should rethink these. Now I think that there's some historic routes that infrastructure is built up around in Boston, so yeah. we don't necessarily need to do um, like what they're what they did in Houston where they just erased the entire map and said let's start over. But I, I come at it more from that angle, Jeremy, as right. opposed to just saying let's yeah. cut bus routes. Right. No, it's yeah. definitely from that. The reason I say that is just because from like my years working in consulting, like that's what you when you say like when you say rationalize this route, um, it usually means it's like, a keyword for it. it. <laughs> is that that's you a know? buzzword? Yeah, yeah that usually is. So, but I could be wrong. But that's yeah. It's uh, and we've talked uh, multiple. We've gone back and forth. Uh, Matt Matt Danish from uh, from. Oh, what, what Walking, Bostonian. Walking Bostonian. Walking Bostonian. Right. Um, Episode four. He <laughs> uh, he immediately retorted with the fact that yeah no there there are reasons why 
there are reasons why these these paths exist. Uh, there is infrastructure. Uh, there is a history, but it, I mean, the history isn't just the. It's not the self justification for the existence of these roots and the alignment, but um, the the fact that they serve a particular purpose, and it's it's kind of like the. Um, uh, I'm losing words here, but yeah, uh, yeah that's that's. The... I mean, that's not you know. When obviously we're not talking about tearing up the system, right. but there's you know there's there's thoughts to you know like you know dealing with like the fifty nine. No, just like the seventy seventy one. We had a whole show right, about yeah. how there's ways right. to think there, about that route. Yeah, there are ways we can eke out yeah. more from the system, uh, and that's and that's something that we hope that's so, what we're talking I, about. I think my point in anyway, in right. sort of um, yeah. giving the high level overview of some of the highlights of what they're wanting this board to have the power to do mm-hmm. is to say you know a lot of these are things that we've already been talking about on this show. Um, basically every episode we've been pounding on some of these things. So there's not as much... Obviously, Jeremy's going to find some things to object to here, but these aren't really these aren't really things that you object to. These all seem to be pretty good. Now, obviously, it's all how does it actually come together. Um, but I think the devil is in the details. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> and what I, what I, where I'm weary about this is like if you... This is the board and if everything, everybody's appointed... Notice how everybody's appointed by the governor. No, it's not. It's uh, uh, The board is it's three people appointed by the governor, one appointed by... Um, the uh, Senate, the Senate, and one appointed by the House. Okay, so yeah. majority appointed by the governor. Excuse me. Right. Um, so notice that, and you see that, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, the governor has his. So, how does this actually shake up, and you know, how is this is this board responsive to the public aside from the governor? You know, these things are very well. Important. Also, I think to be fair, uh, before you criticize that, I think we should, we would need to look back and see uh, the the previous board who got to appoint it, and the governor got to make a lot of the appointments on that board too. Okay. Um, the difference was that he th- the terms of those board members were staggered to where it didn't really belong to any single governor until maybe the end right. of your second term. It, which I mean, kind of. It's on the one hand that's and they kind weren't of they weren't yeah. accountable. It was where was right. the accountability, and this yes. board is more more directly accountable to the governor than that board was. Yes, the problem is uh, balancing stability versus accountability, and I do kind of like this in the sense that previously no one really had. I think that was the problem was that n- well, previously the secretary of transportation sat on the board, right. but their board did not report to her. Yes, yes. And now the board will report directly to the secretary of transportation. This this who new reports board. directly to the governor. The, the new uh, financial <coughs> uh, what is it? The financial and manage fiscal and management control board. The board which has legislation was um, passed was or filed. Legislation filed. was filed today yep. to get to get the wheels moving on this. Um, yes. So I, I did want to ask about the modal. Um, uh, what did it say? Reorganize the MBTA along modal business lines, and uh, to me that sounds like we're basically we need to have an organization around the buses and the ferries and the trains. But what exactly does that mean to to, to you all? I mean that's what we have right now. Yeah. I mean we have that structure right now. But what it, what are modal business lines? I really have no idea. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about transit modes, you talk about you know rail, light rail, and heavy rail, and they all operate. Separately. I guess I was just assuming that's what they meant. Is yeah. that there was there's some we're not currently maybe perhaps they're talking yet. about modal. Bi- I don't know modal business well, lines. We'll, we'll have to we'll have to get back <laughs> to the right. yeah. Governor Baker, on help us, please tell us what you mean. Thanks. Um, if we move on to slide thirty six, um, this gets more into how do we make this happen? And so in thirty six and thirty seven and thirty eight. Um, some of what needs to happen will be executive actions that the governor um, can take himself, uh, e- either through just executive orders or through legislation that he'll personally file. 
and other are legislative actions that um, require the, the legislature to either originate the bills or to follow through um, now and in the future to make the recommendations of the, of the panel um, come to fruition. Um, and we've got some highlights on, on these pages also. And, um, I know, like, so on page 36, um, we're talking about we want to assess the MBTA's most current or most urgent capital and rolling stock needs for the next five years, recommend priorities, and submit a procurement implementation plan. This sounds a lot like the current CIP to me. Um, yeah, does that I mean, sound like that. that to you guys? Right. Yeah, but, um, but this is uh, the way that it's phrased in the, uh, in the filed legislation. So um, in case you are keeping track at home, this is House Docket number 3785, and you can look that up now. Um, on the uh, the MassGov website, um, it it sounds a little bit more visionary. Uh, I really want this to happen because uh, if if the board if that if that fiscal con- control board fiscal and management control board are coming up with this, uh, this this may actually be something a little bit more visionary and, and more progressive than what has been able to be accomplished by. The, the existing capital improvement program. Which was more of just a wish list. Which is, yes, a wish, a wish list, but at the same time, I mean, they have been prioritizing things based on safety and, 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 and needs-based analysis of uh, this needs to happen, otherwise people will die, kind of. And I think you're right, but I think in the current yeah. climate on Beacon Hill, when this board comes up with these recommendations, mm-hmm. I think the legislature... The way that they're working together right. with, the, with the executive branch right now, these things are more likely to happen than when you know, the mass dot board or when the MBTA GM comes and just, uh, you know, hat in hand has their CIP there. Right. Because so. the, the other thing about the CIP is that, uh, at least as, as, as far as the legislation reads, uh, this is section five of the legislation. Um, the, uh, the, the control board, so these, these operating budgets and the, and the capital plans, um, are actually structured and organized to say, uh, to, to address the, the deficiencies of these operating budgets and capital plans previously, but specifically with the capital plans, uh, the issue of a phased program for state of good repair, of achieving state of good repair. Like, how are you going to get there? Which I've, I've read multiple capital plans because I guess that's what I do. Uh, for the MBT, for the MTA, for example, they do a really great job of breaking that down based on the modes and not just simple, like if you read our capital investment, uh, capital improvement program, um, it reads as like, oh, these are things that we'd like to have, and these are things that we've achieved, and blah blah blah. And I mean, it isn't to say that it's not a, a worthwhile document. It's just, it's it doesn't have vision. It doesn't have um, the, uh, I guess, the progress that that we're looking to make, and it doesn't outline that by year. So, which is what a capital plan is for. So, um, MassDOT has actually done a pretty good job with capital plans. That, that's true. And, that, you know, that's one of the things. So um, further down on page 36, they're saying that the governor uh, wants the um, – they want to centralize agency procurement and contracting under a new professional office for both the MBTA and MassDOT. Yes, and that's something that uh, that Secretary Pollock actually spoke about at the last MBTA ROC meeting is that – And what's the, ROC stand for? Uh, right? MBTA Writer Oversight Committee okay. meeting. So this is where uh, she wants to see – 
a lot of the planning stuff get pulled out of the MBTA and more uh, to pull and take advantage of the planning resources that Matt Stott does have because they do have planning staff and they do have people who are actually uh, like transportation professionals with uh, with experience in transit. Um, but uh, I, I'm interested to see where that where that goes and if and making sure that we're aligning aligning our, our skill sets and our resources as necessary and, and uh, if that will actually free up the T to do... Uh, it sounds like the, the, there, this is a move to make sure that the T does what it needs to do in terms of making the system go as opposed to planning for the things to make the system go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, uh, yeah. I mean, sure. Like, yeah, it's fine. But um, you know, the, people, <laughs> the people who yeah. buy them, who know how to buy the buses, and who know what the specs for the green line need to be with the tunnels and everything. I mean, those right. people all work for the T, and so I mean, okay, yeah. Could you achieve some efficiencies? Well, maybe. But I mean, right. Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, try it. Give it a try. See what happens. But, well, yeah. For 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 example, like the uh, um, the ve- the green line vehicle procurement process. Uh, I, I I don't I I see an endless an endless number of arguments back and forth with transit advocate with transit aficionados who want to say we can have longer green line trains and why can't we just buy them off the european market and blah 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 well truth is um boston is pretty special but um the there are i mean certain things that we do need to do with the system to determine um like it it, it 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 we do want a new version uh, a new version of green line cars for uh, for 2020 and beyond but um what is that going to look like and will those pe- will those people again it goes back to the cross industry reference uh cro- yeah the uh, looking outside of the agency insular planning um they don't have the time yeah. for that sort of stuff right now i yeah. mean i'd love to see eventually yeah we look at look okay what are the limiting factors on the green line like Right. Do we need to, you know, do we need to like dig under the common and get rid of that Boylston curve? And like, right. are there things we need to do? Like, right. we, you know, okay, great, yeah, that's fine. But like, you know, that's sort of like right now we need to, you know, we need to get more vehicles out there, and you know, and we need to get new power systems and everything. And the right. people who know how to do that work for the T, and so you know, do you want to pay them out of the mass dot budget? Like, okay, fine, but like, you know what I mean? Like, this doesn't really make much of a difference to me. No, I, I, yeah, I agree. And then, and then there's also the concern that. Uh, that the T does have, I don't know if brain drain is the right right term for it, but mm-hmm. both right. MassDOT and the T, uh, those skill, those very skilled people, as they continue on in their career with the T, they get courted away into into private sector and then end up swinging back into the T as contractors who have to get paid through, and then and then that institutional knowledge is lost. Yeah. So, um, but, but I mean, I yeah. hope. I mean, I hope that. One thing that could come out of this is if, if the T gets on good footing, and this is a big if, but if things start to go well and, you know, morale improves and everything is easier and then people yeah. will start to stay, but, you know, people used to stay for 40, 50 years and yeah. now it's like, you know, now it's like they hit that 25 years or whatever right. and they're like, oh, I'm out, I'm sick of this shit and I'm out of right. here. Well, so. <laughs> I, I think, I think morale, but also we need to get to that point where, and, and again, I think this is, this is, this is one of those, uh, things that's not really explicitly mentioned here is that this buys, uh, a little bit of political capital for the T. Um, if we can, if we can have, we can start to have more rational conversations and stop cherry picking about, uh, oh, a couple million dollars here, a couple million dollars there. Ah, oh, let's, cro-, you know, it's uh, clearly corruption and 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 fiscal mismanagement. If we can actually offer these people, because you know, um, 
if we can offer these people wages that are are somewhat com at least somewhat competitive with private industry because i mean you can have all the all the hope and goodwill inside the tea that you want but if, if they're not paying you uh as much as the other guys then you know why would I stay there? Yeah, I mean so. you don't work in the public sector for the money, but right. it's got to be enough money to feed your family and all that. Right. Stuff. Yeah. So and so you know. real quick, I mean we got to move on, but um, there's an item here: um, develop a proactive plan to significantly increase its own source revenue through mm -hmm. fairs, advertising, concessions, parking, and real estate, as well as through grants and federal programs. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, Alternative funding. Fairs. Yep. Um, you know we've seen advertising. I was thinking just yesterday I was over in North Station and I was, you know, I was waiting like you know, I had to wait like five minutes or something and. I noticed those TVs that they have that show the weather for like ten seconds, and then they spend they spend a minute and a half on ads. Um, and I was just thinking, I'm like, I'm like, I'm sure the team must make a decent amount of money for the, to, to go out and put these things in the stations and deal with all the power issues. Like, I don't remember the public like clamoring for these things, but I was thinking like that's a good example of the team doing something to increase revenue, and it's just like it's still jobs in the bucket, but well, you they know, keep going out doing this stuff. Yeah, right? Who it's hates just, the guy who hates it the most is Governor Dukakis. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because it, well, it's selling the tea. If, if like it's selling. Our transit system is, yeah. I guess, in his mind. Well, and he was he was also a strong proponent of, of they they stopped doing alcohol advertisements. I know I, I used to always be waiting for the Green Line in Kenmore, and they were Bacardi or whatever it was. But you know the other the other interesting thing about that is they thought they were going to get a lot of money for station naming rights, <laughs> and what did they have like three people, like three companies ended yeah. up coming forward. Yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't, even ten, it wasn't even ten percent of what they projected. I think it was a hundred million or something they were projecting based on like each station bringing in one million for a state. Uh, we've I've I've blogged. I've, I think I've they written, got I think yeah. they got like yeah, ten million yeah. in in like the offers. Basically, yeah. they just well they people they, weren't interested. Tufts paid them to rename New England Medical Center station. They paid them I think a quarter of a million dollars, a one time thing. Yeah. So I mean, but but this stuff is just like I mean, aside from the fact that you you know I don't really want like a Citibank station. I mean, I don't know where they're getting this idea. That it's this kind of is... like where you sell a slice of land for thirteen right. million dollars one time, right. and then you never get to use that for recurring revenue ever again. And this but is what I, we've been doing, and we really need to move away from that. I just don't know where they where they keep thinking that this is a successful model somewhere, or somehow that this will be a successful model in Boston because it isn't, and it hasn't, and it like if you if you work in if you work in advertising like th this is it's just not it it's not a very high it's not a, a good way to invest your advertising dollars like it's just not and so that's why people don't jump on that well and i think this is i mean this this sentence that you read jeremy i think is probably one of the more disappointing things in the document is that they're sort of putting an, an outsized amount of weight there, like there was also a statement in here about fair evasion right they're yeah. putting an outsized amount of weight on things that i don't think are going to be the answer and they're but i think they just know it plays to what people think the answer is going to be so they put it in this document and, and, you know, it's frustrating because, you know, they mentioned fares. We already talked about why our fares probably really aren't that far off. And I think we already have a mechanism to raise fares. Yeah. What is it, 5% every other year? Yeah. Maximum I mean, 5% every what, what two are, years. What do you want to raise them, 25 30 45%? Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, parking. Like, people who who do do the suburban park and ride, they they will tell you that the parking rates are really, I mean, kind of crazy. They're high. And also, we've we've uh, there's a... Um, and they're full. Yeah, and they're full. And lots of, but if you add the parking rate to right. the price of coming in from right. zone four, five, six, seven, eight, 
it yeah. starts to become, and then the hassle of doing the park and ride, which we can talk a lot about yeah. why that's not the best model, but it really starts, the people start to say, well, I might as well just drive into the city, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, let's face it, we also have crappy transit. I mean, like the transit coming from the west, for example, I mean, well, or in the south even, like Red Line is overloaded, the Orange Line's overloaded, come from the north. From the west, like, you get the little green line, which can't handle any more people. So, yeah, I mean, then people see that and they drive. Like, we don't have these good options to get people to actually, like, yeah. take the train. From and the I don't know about concessions, um... Yeah, I remember there, there was a slide in here. They were doing some comparison to other systems that run concessions. I think they're talking about the people selling pretzels and the Dunkin' Donuts that's down in <laughs> the station. I'm not sure. I don't know about you, but I'd love platform-side ramen, and I'd pay <laughs> top dollar for that. But. So I'm sure there's something we can do with that. I just don't know if that's the answer. None of these are the silver bullet, as Mark was stating earlier. But to yeah. stay with the revenue uh, for, for, for a little bit, um, you know, page 37... <coughs> they talk more about utilizing real estate assets strategically, <clears throat> which is something that I think maybe if they partner up with um, MassDOT and, and bring in some also some know-how from MassPort, um, the agencies that have, I feel like have done a little bit better job with leveraging the real estate assets yes. than MBTA has yes. in the past. They've, uh, <coughs> there, that was also mentioned at the uh, the uh, the, tran- the Transportation Governance Forum and um well, that'll actually be posted to YouTube um, relatively soon, and you'll be able to watch that that in in full. But um, yeah, uh, and, and we've talked yeah. about we've talked about how municipalities need to contribute more. That's mentioned in here on page thirty-seven. They also talked about that. Is, I mean, yep. I don't know. Did, did you get the feeling? It's, I don't know if the municipalities are going to want to play ball in this. Um, I I think I think well, so because of because of that formula being stuck in like cemented in legislation they they really can't do anything and we can't really measure how much they are willing to throw in uh to volunteer more of that i would personally rather actually see uh the dot's of these municipalities cooperate with the mbta to get dedicated bus lanes and all of these other things i i feel like that's that's a bigger that's a much much bigger uh and uh, quid quid pro quo for, for rather than like just mm-hmm. dumping money into the system whereas you know if a, if the the DOT gives a gives rights to the T or priority to the T they see uh the effect that is a that is a localized effect and 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 probably uh, better for uh for taxpayers in terms of of um feeling like something's getting done uh if uh they they have very specific changes in mind rather than just saying oh let let Cambridge throw in more money uh, to the system but I mean right. admittedly when when the roots go on the chopping block if the if the if the municipality wants to throw in more money to subsidize that that route that should be an option. One of so. the things I've talked about with a couple of people is is this idea of of local funding. We talked about this a lot. A lot, um, yeah. Josh, it's like one of your big things, um, and. The, the idea that, you know, okay, yeah, it is, we, we agree that the T benefits the whole state and all that, you know, we've talked about all that, and it, so it is inherently unfair to say that, like, you know, people outside shouldn't have to pay for it, but whatever, putting that aside, what if we just get people from, you know, if we just, just market to the people from Boston and Quincy and Chelsea and Somerville and Cambridge and these core cities where, like, the vast, vast majority, like 80, 90 percent of people are like, yeah, we, need to, we would be happy to pay for the T, you know, extra sales tax or whatever it is. Um... We, the state would have to pass a law saying that the cities could do that, could charge extra tax. I don't know, would that happen? But maybe that's a way to go. But, I mean, we've had that conversation, and it's like, you know, right now there's... But right now, for the most part, like, nobody wants to pay. Like, they haven't gotten money out of universities. They, I mean, 
you know, this idea that, oh, we're just going to get money from other places. It's like, you, unless you mandate it and you, you know, you, you do the campaigns and all that and you get people to support, you know, a ballot initiative or whatever it is, unless you do that, like... Oh, I wish there was an organization that did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the universities, yeah. I think that's a, that's a funding mechanism that's yet to be seen. You know, mm-hmm. I, we, we've talked about that on the show before, but we'll see how that... That should be shaping up next school year, I think, is what they were wanting... Mm-hmm. Because right, that was right. the, uni- the university pass yes. um, program. Right, yeah, there's no mention. How come there's no mention of that? Uh, well, they did mention universities in here. Um, it was, you know, not not a, a point of emphasis necessarily. But and, and the other one, like, as you mentioned, local impact tax, it, I, I didn't really see that mentioned here. I guess that's sort of the municipality is pitching in. But that that's an innovative thing that other cities do, um, and they found it to be successful. And hopefully, I, you know, you're right, we didn't really see a lot of that. But that is something we could think about as... Leveraging real estate assets. Um, the, the only other two things I wanted to point out from from page thirty eight was uh, getting into revenue with the legislative actions that are required, and so this is where they're asking that the legislature will uh, eliminate the fare restrictions that we just talked about, the restriction of five percent increases every two years, um, and that's one where there's been a lot of discussion about well maybe we can increase the fares a lot more and then give discounts to people who can't afford it. I, I'm not convinced that that's the, the right model, um, and I'm not convinced that that model matches up the value. Um, but if you want to believe the infographics that we saw comparing us to other transit agencies that were more expensive, mm-hmm. you know. I, that model works great if you also do the same for cars. And as you see by the ballot measure last year, we're not willing to do that. Um, if you just charge people more, people are just going to, like you said, people are just going to drive. Doesn't work. And the you know the other thing on here that I think actually um, it's it's not stated right here as as optimistically as I wanted it to be, but I remember there was another slide about this. But they're saying they, they want to limit the future general fund operating assistance um, by purpose, so to cover one the debt service payments and two employee costs for staff moving off capital budgets. That that gets into the firewall between the capital and the operating budget. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But one of the things, and this is in a previous slide, I don't remember which slide it is. But they talked about how the recommendation was that the legislature um, would would basically take over making sure these debt debt payments were serviced, and and effectively the way I read it was effectively this is sort of going to make sure that you didn't need to worry about the right. debt service um, portions that we've been you know complaining about. Well, I'll I'll have to double check to see what the leg- the actual the actual filed mm-hmm. legislation um, says about that. Again, that's uh, that's House Docket. Uh, 3785 that uh, that Charlie Baker, I'm uh, sorry, Governor Charlie Baker um, filed earlier this afternoon. So uh, with that, actually, unfortunately, we are running very long on time here, and my computer uh, is running low on power. So okay. uh, <laughs> so we'll do a quick, uh, I guess, a quick recap or, or, or closing, or how do we want to do this? Yeah. I mean, I think we're good to sign off, really. Yeah, okay. I'm done talking about this. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think we'll. There will be more. There long will be live more the tea. Reason. Yes. Long live the tea. <laughs> there will be there will be many many more conversations to be had. Uh, again, a quick shout out to everyone who did show up to last uh, last week's or was it last week? Yes, last wow. week. Wow, last week's yeah. um, beer and transit event. Uh, stay tuned. We I do believe that we have. Um, uh, uh, who is it? Um, we do have a guest lined up here for the next one. We do, and they're awesome and wonderful and amazing. And yes. You can find out more at transitmatters.info. Yes. You can email us there at feedback at transitmatters, and you can follow us on Twitter at transitmatters. 
Follow us on transit. Follow us on Twitter at Transit Matters. Follow us on YouTube at, at Transit Matters. Follow our channel. We are. Um, I there is some content going up soon. Uh, that the recording of the the panel discussion from uh, from last week's best practices in regional transit governance, um, as hosted by the uh, Eno Center for Transportation and. Uh, uh, transit cent uh, transit center is that right? Kino yes. Uh, and and transit center. So the transit center. Um, so yeah. Uh, thank you again for listening, folks. Um, Jeremy, did you want to do your thing? Did you have? Do I want to do? I have a thing? Um, yeah. <laughs> you can follow me at Critical Transit, and I just redid my website. So if you want to hear a lot of uh, old transit and bike related content and stuff from my tour uh, a couple years ago, then. Uh, it's, uh, just put it into the podcast feed, so check it out. Cool. And you can follow me, Mark Ibunia, on the main Transit Matters Twitter account again, Transit Matters. And you can follow me, Josh Fairchild, at Hatchback31, or just wait for Mark to retweet it. Um, <laughs> but uh, thanks, thanks for listening tonight, and uh, we always look forward to your feedback.